Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personality shaping the stories. Special Edition is a production of Intercom Communications. Welcome to Special Edition. I'm Paula Dagnan. Today, we're going to meet Karen DeClette. She is founder of the Edwardsville Warrior Tree Project. They have an upcoming event where you can donate items, especially winter clothing, for homeless veterans in our area. We're also going to meet Diane Baldy. Diane is the CEO of Hospice of the Sacred Heart. Diane is here to tell us about hospice care and how it has changed over the years but still focuses on the patient and the family. But first on special edition we introduce you to Ronald Felton and David Yonkai. They're with the Wilkes-Barre chapter NAACP. Coming up next Monday is the observance of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day. They have programs to give us background on Dr. King and other ways that you can mark the holiday. Ron, why don't you start? You are the president of the NAACP Wilkes-Barre chapter, and you have a program. When and where? Yes, we have the annual observance of the uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. program taking place on Friday, January 17th at the Luzerne County Courthouse at 6 p.m. It's free, open to the public, and we're looking to have a very uh, exciting time. But I'm going to let David go into what's going to be going on throughout the weekend. All right. Yeah, because there's not just one program. You folks are really getting together and bringing everybody together. Well, we felt that it was important not only to celebrate the holiday with our own own organization, but to have other organizations involved so that people could attend as many events as they possibly could. We didn't want to have any overlap of programming uh, so that uh, everybody could have an opportunity to be there. And as Ron mentioned, our event is going to be at the Luzerne County Courthouse on the 17th. On January 18th, the Women's March is going to be taking place uh, it's going to start at Millennial Circle um, over in Wilkesbury, and then it's going to go over to Kirby Park. And that starts at 11 a.m. on uh, Saturday, January the 18th. On Monday, January the 20th, the actual observance of the holiday of the King Day, where a lot of people are going to be off that day, uh, King's College is going to be doing a program at 11 o'clock at the Sheehy um, Former um, Hall um, third floor, and that's going to be at uh, right off of North Main Street, King's College. And then on January 23rd, Wilkes College is going to be having an event at their student center, and that starts at 11 o'clock. So we have um, the local colleges and organizations who are going to be involved in that day, and it's going to give people an opportunity to celebrate the holiday, but celebrate the uh, work that Dr. King did and the true meaning of the Dr. King holiday. Too many times people kind of look at it as, well, it's a three-day weekend, Mm -hmm. and um, that's something that, you know, we 
people could certainly enjoy their weekend, but we'd like them to attend one of these free events to see exactly what this event was all about. And Ron, I'm going to defer to you with this one now, as Mm -hmm. David mentioned, about what the holiday is all about. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that the holiday is about is community service. Right. So are there ways that people can get involved in doing things, especially you mentioned the colleges? Yeah, I mean, there's various uh, volunteer uh, opportunities, and I think there is even, I don't, I don't know the exact name, but there's a website that you could go to to see what activities are taking place that you might want to participate in. But let me just say this. Uh, before uh, it became a, a holiday that was recognized by the city of Wilkes-Barre in 2018, when I would go out to speak, I would mention to people, look, it's, uh, it's a federal holiday. And uh, myself, my family, we would take some time to reflect on seeing what has transpired since the whole civil rights struggle. But I look at it, it's your day. Do with it what you choose to do. But you should understand why you have that day. Just like, you know, when we used to celebrate George Washington, which is now President's Day and so forth, to understand why. That day came about. Understand why we celebrate the 4th of July. So one of the good reasons to attend one of the events that you mentioned is get the background Mm -hmm. and find out. Because do you find now that, um, and I don't want to pick on young people, but do you find that young people don't know what it's, because David mentioned going into the colleges. So is that one way to make sure that they that they understand exactly what it's all about? I don't know if it's fair to say that they don't know. I don't think they have a frame of reference. On the way up here today, Ron and I were talking about the blessing that both of us had of actually being born right around the time that we were aware of what Dr. King was doing and what the civil rights struggle was all about. Same thing with the space program. I mean, you know, like we were born at a perfect time where we were seeing like things um, evolve and um and the other thing is, too, there's every, every, everything unfolded on TV. So we saw it visually. I think that today um, people don't have like a frame of reference for what the holiday is all about or what Dr. King was all about. And what you have to do is you have to take an interest and research it. And God knows there are so many ways to actually research it right now with Google. I mean, you could certainly look it up and see what the deal is. Um, the King holiday, too, I mean, it just didn't drop into everybody's lap. I mean, it was a struggle to get that holiday done federally, even, because there were people that were opposed to it. Mm-hmm. So um, I think it's more of like a frame of reference. And I think that if people um, want to get involved, they could certainly look to our organization because we're always looking for volunteers or any community organization that is going to get you out of your bubble, out of yourself. Too many people today are in a bubble. If they like one particular thing, they are just basically interested in that. And um, th- that that's all I would say, that uh, the community means um, service above self. Okay. And Ron? I, and I would say, too, that, uh, and I often say uh, that I was born in the segregated South. I was born in 1953 in a place called Ahosky, North Carolina. Uh, I'm the last born of uh, the the parents of Saini and Ruby Felton. And all my other sisters and brothers, uh, they attended segregated school. I'm the only child that attended an integrated school in the North because I didn't start school until I came North. 
Because down south, you didn't start school until you're about six years old. So at the time that we moved up here uh, to New Jersey, I was five years old. So one of the things that I always look at is that I had the benefit of not being indoctrinated into the system of segregation that my sisters and brothers had to experience. I remember going uh, to the movie with my parents and we having to sit up in the balcony because that was the only place you could sit. But I didn't understand why. It was too young. Which today's youth listen and hear this and say, what's he talking about? Exactly. Can't even Can't even understand that. But they probably know Martin Luther King Jr.'s address. Mm-hmm. And Ron, from what I understand, you are going to be giving that at your yes, at, event? Yes, at the event that we're having at the courthouse, I will be reciting Dr. King's uh, I Have a Dream speech. And the thing about that, and I was telling David, uh, I didn't know this until we moved up here, uh, that my father-in-law, with conversations with him, was there when he gave that speech in Washington, the March on Washington. So, but, and so we have a lot of family members who have these uh, icons in history, these iconic moments, such as the March on Washington. I participated in the Million Man's March. My wife participated in the Million Women's March in Philadelphia. My, her niece participated in the Million Women's March in New York City. My son participated in the March for Our Lives back in uh, 2018, I believe. Yeah. So now, and you still have, as you mentioned, David, you have the Women's March that's going to be in Wilkes-Barre on Sunday. So again, a new generation being able to get involved. Yeah, that's on a Saturday, right? Or on, Saturday, I'm, I'm sorry. On yeah. the 18th. Yeah. On the 18th. But yeah, exactly. There are a lot of opportunities for people to get involved in, in something, and that's why, one, that's why we actually put together um, a plan where it just wasn't like one event. It was a series of events um, highlighting you know, community service because it, essentially that's what uh, the um, civil rights struggle and also what Dr. King advocated was all about, you know, coming together as a community. We are all in this together. We all have the same aches and pains. We all have the same issues and problems. And uh, uh, there just has to be a little bit of a realization that, um, you know, we're and, and unfortunately today, sometimes it looks like we're in our separate camps. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the people that I really admire is a commentator, Michael, uh, Michael Smirkanish basically says we all have our own jerseys on. Exactly. And, you know, our, our, our own type of uh, political philosophy, colored jerseys, you know, and we just have to understand that even though we have different uh, jerseys of political beliefs, we are still in this together. And we have to, if there's a problem, we have to have a workable solution to um, make it better for everybody. All right, Ron, I'm going to have you step up and issue the invitation to all and to just all of the events. Why do people need to get there? Yes, I would encourage everyone to come out and support all of the different events that are going to be taking place the weekend, starting with the kickoff with the NACP on January, Friday, January 17th at 6 p.m. It's free, open to the public. And then you have the Women's March 
Uh, what is the public S- square? Sunday. It's actually, Millennial Circle. Millennial okay, okay, Circle. Millennial Circle. So you want to come out and support that. Then you have on the uh, January 20th, the King's College program, which I'm one of the keynote speakers. I'm the keynote speaker. And then you have the Wilkes uh, University program, which is on January 23rd. All right. Gentlemen, thank you. You're going to be busy. <laughs> Thanks again to Ronald Felton and David Yonkai for joining us with details about their upcoming programs that will begin on Friday, January 17th at the Luzerne County Courthouse, followed by the Women's March, which will be on Sunday from Millennium Circle in Wilkesbury, and then on Monday, the program at King's College, followed by the program on the 23rd at Wilkes University. More special edition to come. We're going to find out about helping area homeless veterans. Don't go away. Welcome back to Special Edition. There's still plenty of winter left, and it's sad to say, but many homeless veterans are without things to keep them warm this winter. That's why Karen DeClett, the founder of the Edwardsville Warrior Tree Project, along with Tammy Winger, will be holding a blanket and winter gear drive. They are working in conjunction with Commander Lucius Washington of the American Veterans Post 59 in Hanover Township. They will be taking donations of goods and he will be helping to distribute them. Karen's here to tell us how you can help. Karen, tell us about the organization itself. You said that you're the founder. How did all this come about? My son was in the Marine Corps, and the first year he, when he graduated boot camp, I found out that he was coming home for Christmas. But then I also found out from other moms that their sons weren't coming home for Christmas. So that's when I realized the impact of holidays and birthdays have on the military families. So I started a little tree in my house with uh, the names of his boot camp brothers on stars on the tree and we played tag your marine <laughs> on facebook it just it just grew so big we started off with 100 stars on the tree the next year it was over 200 stars the next year it was 300 stars and i just made a comment i said i think mama's going to need a bigger tree and we got one we got the edwardsville warrior tree project planted in uh veterans park here on main street in edwardsville now is this something that's done around just around the holiday time or is this something that you are personing throughout the entire year well we kind of do this throughout the entire year i mean during during the holidays like the weekend before no thanksgiving we do a tree lighting ceremony where uh we have uh everyone come down from american legions and that vfws they do military honors for us we have a dj playing uh, the recruiters come down, they play Sergeant Santa, we have a little parade, uh, we hand out toys to the kids, and then we ask a, a, a local uh, veteran to light the tree for us. That's always done in November, like I said, the weekend before Thanksgiving. But during the year, we have little fundraisers here and there, like we're doing now with the uh, Winter Gear Drive. We also have a dart tournament every April to help raise money so that we can donate to uh, local veteran charities, various charities in the area. But this year, again, we're doing a winter coat drive. This will be the biggest one that we're working on so far. This is our fourth one. And what we're asking for are for blankets, uh, newer gently used blankets, winter coats, hats, 
gloves, scarves, whatever people can give us, and it's for our homeless veterans. We do this for the uh, commander of uh, uh, AMVEST Post 59 in Hanover Township. His name is Lucius Washington. He's the one that is going to be distributing uh, everything that we collect. He works closely with uh, like homeless shelters and homeless veterans. So where do you have people dropping off these items for this particular fundraiser? For this one, we have it uh, January 18th from 1 p.m. to 4 p.m. Drop-off is at Black Diamonds American Legion, post 395 in Kingston, Pennsylvania. It's on Wyoming Ave, right next to Post Tire. So far, we've we also have other American Legions, such as Durier, Sons of American Legion, setting up their own collection box for us. Black Diamond Legion is doing their own collection for us right now. We also have like Nanico Coit Club. They're going to be taking up a collection for us. There's like a whole bunch of places. VFW, Kingston VFW Post 283 is also taking up a collection for us. In February, uh, when they have their um, Blizzard Bash party, the importance of this is everyone, all of the veteran organizations are pulling together for this and helping us out, helping our homeless veterans, because they feel veterans should be helping veterans, and, and the veteran population is growing, and, you know, it, it's sad. These people served our country. They shouldn't be homeless. They should be taken care of. Absolutely. And when we're talking about how all of this gets start got started, what was the response from your son, and did he tell the rest of his buddies, hey, you guys are yes. and gals are on a tree that my mom put together? Yes, he did, and the response on Facebook was overwhelming. I had Marines and soldiers coming to me asking me to please put their names on, on the stars on the tree at the house, and every year the, the number of stars on my little three-foot tree grew and grew, and it got to be a bit overwhelming keeping up with everybody's ranks and, and where they were located and, you know, deployed or at home or just stationed overseas. But I kept up with over 300 names, 300 soldiers and, and, and Marines and, and sailors, airmen. Like I said, when, when it became too much for my little tree and I said, Mama needs a bigger tree, <laughs> uh, we decided to go to city council and... Um, ask permission to plant a tree in Veterans Park. And now what we have, instead of names on stars, we have all branches represented. The children of State Street Elementary, the one year planted uh, or painted uh, 400 stars for us. And they're hanging on the tree. And each star is just beautiful. You look at some of them, they'll bring tears to your eyes, the way the kids painted them. They're, they're just gorgeous, overwhelming. You are just one awesome mama. Oh, well, thank you very much, but <laughs> and, I'm not in it for credit for myself. Oh, absolutely not. Yeah. I can I can tell, and we want to thank your son and, and all of those that you have uh, reached out to and that have reached out to you for their service. So thank if you. anyone would like to not only get involved in the upcoming clothing drive that you're looking for, is there a way, you mentioned Facebook, is there a way that somebody could find you and say, gee, Karen, I'd like to help? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, they can go to Facebook and like our page. It's the Edwardsville Warrior Tree Project on Facebook, and they can message me through there, or they can look me up, Karen DeClette, on Facebook and message me that way as well. 
Facebook. Everything is basically done through Facebook, word of mouth. Uh, we need to get the word out. That's the important thing. So thank you very much for covering this. And once again, for the 18th, where yes. and when is uh, the best place that somebody would be able to drop off their items that they would like to uh, donate? Okay, that would be the Black Diamond American Legion, post 395, located uh, at 386 Wyoming Avenue in Kingston, right next Coast Tire. Uh, we'll be there January 18th between 1 and 4 p.m. for drop-offs and donations. Once again, thanks to Karen DeClett for joining us today to give us the information. And don't forget that they will be gathering at the Black Diamond American Legion Post 395. That's at 386 Wyoming Avenue in Kingston, right next to Coast Tire, on Saturday, January 18th, from 1 until 4. They're looking for new or gently used blankets, winter coats, hats, scarves, and gloves to make sure that homeless veterans in Luzerne and Lackawanna counties are warm this winter season. Now, don't go away. We're going to meet Diane Baldy, Hospice of the Sacred Heart, when we return on Special Edition. Welcome back to Special Edition. It's not a discussion that many people want to have with their loved ones, but sometimes it's necessary. Diane Baldy is with Hospice of the Sacred Heart to give us some insight into that discussion and tell us how she got involved. Well, I'm a registered nurse. I've been a registered nurse since 1983, and I've been doing hospice work since 1987 as a uh, registered nurse case manager, director of nurses, director of an inpatient unit. And 17 years ago this year, um, CEO of Hospice of the Sacred Heart. So it's been hospice for me for almost all my career. Now, when people say hospice, I know, again, hospice has changed a lot, the outlook of hospice. Mm -hmm. My mom had hospice back in the 1990s. Mm -hmm. There's been... A lot of things that have changed. What would you say if someone said to you, Diane, what is hospice? What does it mean? Well, that's a good question. I think um, what I do know is that hospice is a level of care, a certain part of the Medicare, uh, the Medicare benefit for for one, but mostly at the healthcare system. It's for those patients who have, by their physician, been deemed to have a prognosis of six months or less. So it's a specialized care for those patients and their families. I never say patients without families because many of us know that when somebody in your home is sick, the whole family is sick. So families are dealing with this illness as well. So hospice is a specialized branch of medicine that deals with those patients uh, with a limited prognosis and gives them the best aspect of pain and symptom management, certainly the whole component of social work and spiritual counseling and volunteers that are available, as well as the medical management and the clinical management of the disease. Now, you said six months, but I don't think it necessarily, you can't put a time frame. You can't, and that's a very good point. Um, What our physicians, certainly our medical director, as well as the patient's attending physician, what they declare is that the patient, to the best of their knowledge, to the best of their knowledge, can say that this prognosis may be limited to six months or less, based on very clear guidelines through Medicare and medical assistance, as well as the private insurers. So they would look at a disease as Alzheimer's, for example, and say, does this patient meet these criteria? 
And they'd say, to the best of my ability and best of my knowledge, yes, they do. And when we're also talking about hospice, you mentioned families. And I think that's probably, since so many things have changed, that in itself has changed. That's been a big change, especially over the course of my career in hospice. When I started in the late 80s, a lot of patients, families were still home. Women weren't in the workforce as much or, or vice versa. And so you see then they had the uprise of inpatient units, you know, for maybe um, certainly it becomes short-term management, but it's as a place. And you see that a lot of caregivers aren't available. So that was really the big switch in hospice over the past 33 years that I can tell you that a lot of caregivers are just not available. People have to work, you know, and so that's why that's been a huge change. And it's like a respite care, Mm -hmm. but not for the patient. No, it's um, there's a level of care in, under the hospice benefit through Medicare and also medical assistance that allows respite because if you are a caregiver, if caregiver, if you're a full-time caregiver, even a part-time, it's exhausting work, not only mentally, physically, but emotionally exhausting. So there's a, up to five days on a level of care that's known as a respite that a patient would be transferred to an inpatient facility or someplace that the hospice has a contract with. And therefore, it's a rest for the patient's caregivers or their family or friends. And again, that doesn't mean anything. Mm-mm. It doesn't mean that things are ending. It doesn't, it's Not just something. All. And if you haven't experienced it, then you yeah. probably can't appreciate it. Truly. And it's and the patient is in great hands, as well as the caregivers kind of getting that revival that they need. Where did Hospice of the Sacred Heart come from? The me, the name, or the Both, the everything. Okay. Well, it's it's a kind of a little bit of a long story. So if you bear with me, um, it'll be 17 years ago this year. I had been working at another hospice in the area for a very long time, and I got a phone call one evening from uh, a physician. I didn't know my kids are still home. You know, they were doing their homework at the table. I was getting dinner ready, and they said, "Mom, there's a Dr. Bucci on the phone." And I live in Scranton, so I didn't know who he was. And I thought, oh, gosh, was there something I forgot to do at the inpatient unit? Was he, was he angry? Is he upset? So I called him. He says, you don't know who I am. He said, I'm Dr. Bucci, an ophthalmologist in Wilkes-Barre. And your name was given to me by someone who thinks that you might be able to start a hospice for me. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And I said, well, doctor, <laughs> I thank you, but I'm not sure who gave you this call. And I'm really very happy where I am right now. He said, please just do me the justice. If you hear my story and change your mind, then we'll, that'll be okay. I said, well, okay, I'll be happy to. I said, when? He said, tonight. He said, I'll come to Scranton. I'll meet with you. So cut to the chase a little bit. Um, so what had happened six months before me meeting Dr. Bucci, his wife of 22 years had died suddenly. Mm-hmm. And he and his wife every January went to Hawaii for two weeks. One week was for his um, conference for ophthalmology, and the second week was their family vacation. So he was only going to go that six months later after she had died, uh, his wife Angie. He was going to go just to the conference and not to Hawaii because he just couldn't be there without her. He was truly and still remains quite devastated by her loss. And so he said to his staff, give me, you know, I'd like to go to a retreat. His son lived in California. I'll stop and see John, and then we'll, uh, I'll go on that retreat. So he said to his staff, but I really would like to start a hospice in Angie's honor. So while I'm gone, see if you can find someone who might be interested in starting it for wow. me. So he does the Hawaii conference, and he goes to California, and he's telling me this. Now, Paul, I've never met the man before, and he said that when I was on my retreat, I was walking. 
He said, and all of a sudden I had this incredible feeling as I was walking along the base of Mount Baldy that they would have found someone who's going to start the hospice for me. Oh, wait a minute now. <laughs> Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> so it gets better. So he said, I came back, and I came back to my office in Wilkes-Barre, and one of the nurses came running up to me, and she said, Doctor, I think I might know the name of somebody who could start the hospice for you. He said, what did I tell you? I knew it was going to happen. I was walking along the base of Mount Baldy. With that, her, she goes white and pulls my name out of a piece of paper. Um, it was a nurse who I had worked with many years ago at Mercy Hospital in Scranton, knew I was doing hospice work and just thought it was worth a shot. So six weeks maybe in, in agonizing um, and seeing you know, all those different decisions, um, I decided to take the leap. How um, could you not? Well, I know. You, you don't <laughs> test fate, right, Paul? Really? Absolutely. And a good friend of mine had said to me, um, you know, if you... In 10 years from now, would you regret not making the decision? And, and so it's that's been how many? 17. It's been 17, <laughs> so you haven't made one. That is yeah. one incredible story. Right. And, and doc- where did Sacred Hearts come in? Dr. De- uh, Dr. Bucci um, has a great. Um, devotion to the sacred heart as did his wife so that's where the name came from and it's uh it's worked for us for very well and most of us all do that is that is one incredible story and and i would say at this point in time did you uh play the lottery that night i should (laughs) but i I didn't wow (laughs) so it started 17 years ago 17 years ago i had a little office i was there for about six to eight months by myself just doing the policies procedures all those necessary legal things to start a program and then um the interest well there's so many interesting parts of it but then groups of us came together then there was five of us and we were able to do all the documentation required and then we had um we were certified um by medicare and then for the first year, our census was like one, maybe three, <gasps> maybe two. So later on that August, after we received certification, Dr. Bucci calls me again and on a Sunday. And he said, how about you come down and meet me for lunch? <laughs> and I said to my husband, he's going to close. I understand. Because at that same time, Dr. Bucci was paying all our salaries um, out of the goodness of his heart. And he said, I'm never going to close. He said, I know that's why you think I called you down here. What I want you to believe is that... Someday we are going to do very well, but you have to never, ever forget what it was like to have a census of two. So well, things came together. The I, stars I, aligned. Talk about <laughs> unbelievable yeah. stars aligning. <laughs> Woo! And where are you today? Our, well, we have three locations. Our main office is in Wilkes-Barre. Uh, we have a Center for Education on Montage Mountain Road. We have about five people who were office there. And then we have our inpatient unit in Dunmore, um, which is a 10-bed inpatient unit. Oh, that's that in itself is just uh, an amazing, an amazing story. It's a little bit of a miracle. It yeah. is, and I guess that's why, if it was anything else but hospice, it wouldn't have the same kind of feeling. It's true, and it is because of the level of how we reach people, um, both patients and their families, um, and then how a, a team can come together. And hospice is really meant to be team. And so it all comes together, and what a great privilege it has been for all these years. Why do you suppose that people now don't investigate hospice? Uh, because there's, and, and I'm going to throw out the term palliative care, mm-hmm. because that's something that now seems to be one of the new buzzwords. It has, you're, you're right, it has been. I think even, you know, all these years later, 33 years later, Patients and their families are terrified of the word hospice. Um, you know, 
we call it the H word because they think it's it's a bad word because they believe that it's you know patients are going to die right away within three days and that's it. It truly is not meant to be because six months is a very long time. And in those six months, um, if the patient continues to decline or still shows symptoms, they can be recertified again. So six months, you know, it's a very clear process of how that happens if patients can stay on. So I think patients and families and sometimes the medical community don't have a true understanding. So investigation is a good word to use. Palliative care, and this is just my own opinion, I I strongly believe palliative care and hospice care have the same components. Um, Certainly that team approach, those cores, team, you know, the nurse, the physician, the social worker, the counselor, the pastoral care is a huge part of it. But um, palliative care and hospice probably end um, when the six months comes. So the truth be told, when a patient is diagnosed with a life-limiting illness, palliative care should start that day and then work in tandem with hospice care. Um, I think palliative care may be an easier term to use with patients and families who are terrified of the hospice or are terrified of a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where they, you know, they run up to an end and then it becomes all, it should become all hospice at that point. Explain hospice a little bit how it works because you have home hospice you Mm -hmm. mentioned you have an inpatient Mm -hmm. unit and the other question a lot of people ask is let's say you have an incident at home and an ambulance takes you to the hospital how does the hospital work with hospice well hospice works that if we receive a referral from a physician and we, whether the patient is at home or in a long-term care facility, um, our admissions team goes out, does the evaluation. They ask the questions. They already have um, the physician's order. So they kind of do the, the background check to see if this patient, when they report back to the medical director, is acceptable and um, able to be on hospice care. So then it is signed to a case manager, registered nurse, who then goes out and she determines or he determines what services the family and the patient requires, how many visits, whether they be for personal care, for skilled visits, if the volunteer is um, would be helpful, then they determine that with the team. Every one of our patients in any hospice is reviewed every 15 days with all those four core fields, um, core positions um, present. So then if a patient... The idea is, uh, and another myth I think about hospice, that you have to have a do not resuscitate. That is not true for, I can speak for hospice of the Sacred Heart, because that's a big decision. Mm-hmm. The only place for us, it's true, is for an inpatient unit, because we don't have a crash cart. So we would say, you know, there's two hospitals in that area. If you choose that, then you would have to go be discharged from here. So the patient, that's up to the patient and that's the family. That's completely up to the patient and family, So Correct. just because you say hospice doesn't mean... right. Okay. Correct. And that's a decision, again, speaking for hospice of the Sacred Heart that you would make. That's why a social worker comes in and, and a counselor comes in and sits down with a patient and family and they're able to discuss these um, decisions, these big decisions. So in terms of an ambulance, we certainly talk to our families and so we have that, that difficult conversation you know, about the resuscitation. Um, the five wishes. Um, and yeah, we have to talk about We're going to talk about five yeah. wishes, which is a great topic. And when the family and the patient have decided this is what we're going to do, we can tell them that we're 24 hours, seven day a week service. If there's a problem and you think it's something we can handle, call us. We'll get somebody out there as quickly as possible to probably avert a hospitalization. 
Sometimes you cannot. So the hospitals work. We let the hospitals know that this is a hospice patient. Our staff follow up in the hospital and certainly help with the discharge planning, either back to home or back to a facility. When we're and and when we talk about the um, Medicare, and we talk about the requirements, so hospice you have to meet a certain criteria, right? And if you, as you said, the DNR order, the do not resuscitate, and what happens then if a family decides, if the patient decides that maybe I want to do that, then what happens to their relationship with hospice? Because you're kind of going above and beyond what, as you said, you don't have a crash cart. Right. And are you talking about the inpatient unit? The inpatient right. unit, yeah. If anybody, and when that's something that's known to everybody through documentation, whether this patient chooses resuscitation or chooses not to be resuscitated. So we have that uh, discussion up front, you know, and say, and this is the case, and it's very clearly discussed as well as documented about the ambulance. So if a patient does decide to forego the DNR, can they get back into hospice? Oh, of course, yes, you can get back in, certainly with a physician's order and the consultation with, uh, strongly encourage the attending physician, who most likely has known that patient for a very long time. Mm-hmm. We will certainly want to keep them involved as well. So it's not like, again, once you're going into hospice and going into hospice care that you're just getting rid of everything else. No, no, no. And again, the patient remains in charge where the patient and family should remain in charge of their care. So patients change their mind all the time, you know, and certainly with hopefully investigation or discussion with family members. And that's our what's one of our roles there is to help foster that communication and make it clearer and so everybody's on the same page in terms of the patient and family's care because when we're talking about things like that there are things that are Mm life-sustaining and as you mentioned in the very beginning hospice is to control to help ease to help facilitate things like that so if you are on medications Mm -hmm and different things that might be life-sustaining. How does that all work into it? Well, maybe I guess the best example may be um, a peg tube or a tube feeding. That might be a great example. If the patient has one, certainly that discussion, you know, takes place. Is this something you would like to continue? You know, do a benefits and burdens type conversation about that. Certainly in conjunction with the attending or the family physician as well as the medical director. And then this is what the patient has wanted. The patient and family are in the driver's seat, you know, and they're the core. Actually, they're at the head of the table um, at an interdisciplinary meeting. So the patient and family would understand that, that this being discussed, and we accept that. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about the five wishes. Now, first of all, explain to us what that would be in the term of medical the Five Wishes is a terrific document. Um, we started using it at Hospice of the Sacred Heart in, in terms of all our patients, all our new patients. But it's not just for you. No, no, no. It is not just for us. It's for anybody. Um, and it's uh, it's a wonderful document that um, actually, uh, I believe he was a social worker who worked in a hospice, decided that he was having deeper conversations with patients and their families regarding their last wishes. Um, we know it commonly as... Um, what our rights are in terms of what our resuscitation rights are, what we want, what we don't want. Advanced our advanced directives. directives is basically what it is, and which is something you can run offline, and it's a pretty cold, stark document. And so the five wishes makes it more um, 
personal, and I think that's the best way I can describe it. They ask the patient in conjunction with the family. It kind of starts that conversation that we all shy away from because it's a very difficult conversation. So what we do, what the five wishes does is say, this is who I want for my physician. This is who I want with me. This is what I want if I should become incapacitated. I can't make it my own decisions. For example, I want music playing. I want my family here. I was amazed at that. I don't want a hospital bed. Yeah. This is what I'd like in my funeral. I mean, so it, it makes it easier. We've had since uh, very many instances where the patient family say, you do this part and I'll do this part and we'll come together and have that conversation. So it's, it's very clear. It is a legal document. Um, and we strongly suggest if anybody's using them to certainly have a copy, let your physicians know, uh, be aware of it. And we want, we're there to honor it. We're there to protect it for you and to help you live by it. So it's back to the conversation that, you know, we just passed the holidays and we strongly have always encouraged families to, this is a good time. Family isn't from out of town. This is a great time to at least, if you haven't done it, to sit down as a group and do it. And then also um, to do it privately and then share that information. And you said it is a legal it document. It is a legal document. It doesn't have to be notarized. It does not have to be notarized, not in Pennsylvania. And actually, um, if you're, and I know you're familiar with it, Paula, there's a little card that mm-hmm. says, I have, you know, five wishes. And it is, it's, it's a terrific document that is so personalized. It's not that cold document. I do not want resuscitation. I don't want tube feedings. You know. No gray oh, areas. No gray areas. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And it makes it easier for families. There's nothing worse, I believe, than in the hospital and you're having those, you know, those hallway conversations, you know, and all of a sudden you don't know what to do. And you, you, the person, um, your family member who is the patient and can't um, speak for themselves, I don't know what they want because we never talked about it. So right. this strongly encourages it. And the other thing when it comes to that, uh, as we said, it's not just for the Hospice of the Sacred Heart. Right. You can get these, you can get it online? We can get it online, and I think it's a dollar for a copy or something like that. But if you certainly look at it, and it kind of give, it definitely gives you the idea of what questions to ask and how to make that clear, especially if you're the patient, for your family and loved ones. Mm-hmm. Because, again, like an advanced directive, it only comes into play if you're unable to make decisions for yourself, if you're incapacitated. And you can also uh, give other things. There are, there's space where you can go in and you can say, unless this or right. because of that. I or... want this. All, everything is covered. Yeah. Um, and all possible scenarios down to your obituary and, you know, um, people you want um, near you and by you and how you want the room set up or not. And it's it just has such a great sense of peace, I think, for families and patients. And I think a lot of times, too, people don't think about those things. It's unpleasant, I think, sure. or it's hurtful to think about it. And again, especially during the holidays or certainly anniversaries. You, like I said, you don't want that hallway conversation in a hospital or a doctor's office because you're just not prepared. So mm-hmm. I think um, the one true thing is that we all know it's going to be our time soon. So um, we try to do it once a year, even for our staff, just to, because we were doing it all the time for patients and families, make sure you have your own. Oh, but that's very true mm-hmm. as well, because again, mm-hmm. it starts, It the mm-hmm. biggest thing it does is it starts a discussion, mm-hmm. and sometimes, now that would be something that I also ask about hospice today, as opposed to hospice mm-hmm. then, um, even 17 years doesn't seem like a long no. time, but a lot of things have changed, right. and as someone who is involved in hospice and has been involved in this, 
what would you suggest or how would you suggest someone who maybe is hearing this for the first time and saying, you know, maybe we should do, how do you broach something like that? Well, we we do get those questions a lot because families and patients are very concerned, whether it's been for a very um, life-limiting illness or a diagnosis has just come. And, and I'll use the example Alzheimer's and because I think the other myth to dispel is that the public, I think for the most part, even after all these years that hospice has been around since the early 80s, um, believe that it's all patients have to have cancer, and that is not the truth. Um, cardiac disease, certainly, um, end-stage neurological diseases, Parkinson's, um, but Alzheimer's is kind of easy to say because the cancer is a little bit more easy to prognosticate. Not always, but for the most part it is. These other diagnoses are not. So my, my best suggestion to everybody, you said the word, investigate, do your homework, um, so for example, if you have a patient or somebody that you love who may be diagnosed with Alzheimer's, some of the criteria for that to make them eligible now for hospice care would be that the patient has lost the ability to smile. The patient may be incontinent of, of bowel and bladder. The patient, uh, their vocabulary is limited to six words or less. They are bed bound and they require full assistance with all their activities of daily living, you know, cooking, bathing, washing. So those patients do meet the criteria for hospice care. If that belongs, those criteria belong to somebody that you know, certainly call your physician, then have them reach out. Because again, which is a wonderful thing now, patients are in the driver's seat. We get to make those decisions for ourselves. And I think that's probably the best way I approach it. I actually always have the criteria with me for all the other diagnoses to say, before I go and talk to somebody, yes, they, they do qualify or they don't qualify, but here are some other options of care. Now, before we let you go today, what are some of the other myths that maybe you have come across that right. you'd like to be able to say, oh, and by the way. Right. I, I think it's probably not only is it, you know, um, the, how hospice responds and how hospice it only comes, you know, three days before a patient is going to die. That's not always the truth. And I think we, we're not emergency medicine. So I think we do our best work when we're involved earlier uh, that hospice is truly about pain and symptom management. One of the myths is that we give morphine to everybody. <laughs> that is not the case. Um, we do not do that. And that um, our patient, our staff are so clinically sound and compassionate in every single way and dedicated certainly to the mission of hospice as well as to the place where they work. So I think the best advice to dispel those myths is to do your research, to do your homework and find out exactly what hospice is. Call. I'd be more than happy to help at any given time. Um, as well as our admissions team or anybody in the office would be happy to help. Talk, reach out to somebody you know who's using hospice care. See what their experience has been. Again, it's for the whole, uh, the whole patient and family unit. Um, and we do personal care. We do um, vital signs. We do blood work. We do IVs. We do all those things. But our biggest um, efforts are always to provide comfort, care, hope, and choice to patients while getting them and their families through the end-of-life journey. So that uh, the myths still remain, but I'm still here all these years later to dispel them. 
and how you got here in itself is a fascinating story. How can people get in touch with you if they would like to start investigating? Oh, certainly. And I can certainly give you the correct websites and, and resources to look for. Um, my email address is dbaldi, um, B-A-L-D-I, at hospicesacredheart.org. And certainly you can call the office. They have a great way of tracking me down at 570-706-2400. Thanks once again to Diane Baldy for joining us today on Special Edition. And as Diane mentioned, there are many ways to start a discussion that you might not want to have with your loved one, one of them being Five Wishes. You can find out more about the Five Wishes by contacting Hospice of the Sacred Heart or by going online and doing a search for Five Wishes, including going to the website Aging with dignity. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories, a production of Intercom Communications. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.